Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of That's Not Crazy. We are two psych nurses talking about all things mental health, and we're happy to have you here. We are happy to have you here because we love talking about this stuff. Yes. We were talking about it for like an hour before we even started this <laughs> yeah, episode. We're like, okay, get it together. We got to get stuff done today. So <laughs> here we are. Tell me, friend, what's something you did for your mental health this week? Ooh, I like this question, and I think we should do this more often. Okay. Something I've done for my mental health this week has been, I went to therapy this week. I called an emergency therapy appointment. How about you? What did you do for your mental health this week? I was having a really hard time focusing on schoolwork. And two, that relates to my lows and highs, but I just, I had an assignment that was due and I just couldn't do it. So I remembered that part of the policy at my school is if you need help or you need extra time or something is going on that's preventing you from finishing an assignment, you can send your instructor an email as long as it's within... 12 hours of the deadline and let them know what's going on and ask for an extension. And I heard that at first and I was like, I would never. Yeah. Just get your work done and you'll do it early and you'll never have to worry about being late. Well, that's great if everything in your life is going great. But over the past week, that hasn't been the case for me. And I was pressuring myself like, oh gosh, it's due tomorrow and I got to sit here and maybe I have to stay up all night and then I'll be losing sleep and then I have to work tomorrow and I know tomorrow's going to be a busy day because I signed myself up for extra work, which yeah, we won't even go there. But um, <laughs> so yeah, I sent my instructor an email and just said due to multiple losses and grief, I'm having a poor mental health week, and I would like some extra time completing this assignment. And the next day, she wrote back and said, your request is granted, and you'll be in my thoughts, and good luck. That's so, so nice. Instantly, I had this like huge weight lifted off my shoulders, and I felt a whole lot better and gave myself some extra time just by asking for it. I like that, and I would never... Like, I am the same way. I would just, I, that would be so hard to write that email. And so proud of you for doing yeah, that. You I'm, told me like that. Not, you're like, I think I'm going to write this email to extend this assignment. And I was like, no, just get it done. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even care about your mental health. <laughs> but it's like, that's part of the mission here is like being able to admit, hey, it's yeah. it's there's no other reason other than my mental health is suffering right now and either I need a day off work or I need to come in a little bit later today or I need some extra time to complete this task because I'm having a rough time. Yeah. And those are things that we have such a hard time saying out loud or admitting, but we all feel it and that policy is there for a reason and like I was talking to someone else about it and they're like, people probably do that all the time for like yeah. dumb reasons or whatever. Yeah. And maybe it's not a dumb reason, but they party too much the night yeah, before. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
So you legitimately had a reason. Yeah. yeah, it's there and I took advantage of it and it instantly improved my poor mood and my stress level. And now I feel like I can ease into it and not rush to just hammer it out and probably the work quality will be a little bit better too. Or probably I'll wait until the day before that deadline. (laughs) In any case, I feel a lot better about it. Nice. Well, uh, lows and highs. Yeah. Do you want to go first with your lows and highs? Yeah. I felt really sad and full of grief over the last week for a lot of different reasons. And I think I do that too, where... One sad thing happens, and then I start thinking about all the other sad things happening in my life, and gosh, it's just this whole black cloud of misery surrounding me, and that feels terrible. So that was happening. And then for my high, I felt really grateful and accomplished because I looked down at my calendar to see that I only have a few weeks left of this first term of my school, and as hard as it has been and as taxing as it has been, I'm getting through it, and I'm almost done with it, and I'm doing really well, and that makes me feel grateful and accomplished, and I'm like, wow, look at you. Even though all this shit is going on, you're still getting it done. Yeah. So I'm proud of myself. Yeah. The other day you mentioned that you were at your place right now for three months and that just blew my mind like whoa you've been here for three months and doing so much in those three months that is like a huge accomplishment just in itself yeah even though it probably feels overwhelming yeah and it's funny it's like it feels so many different things and all those things are so temporary and that's another reason why I like to talk about these lows and highs is to not only express that those feelings exist but also that they go away, they pass. And by next week, I'll be on to some other crisis. And the week after that, I won't even think about how I'm feeling right now. And it's okay. It's normal. Like be sad, acknowledge it. But also, can you remember what your low was from two weeks ago? No, I can't at all. I like that too, because it's like this audio journal that we're doing. Right. (laughs) It's really cool. And to another reason why You know, before I applied for this program, the psych nurse practitioner program, I was thinking, gosh, that's two years and how am I going to do that? But I keep reminding myself that the time is going to pass anyway and I will do it. And all of the stressors that happen right now eventually won't matter anymore. I won't remember them. I won't think about them and I'll be done with this goal either way. Yeah. So my lows and highs, I'm actually going to go through the high first. My high was finishing the challenge last weekend. I did that 4 by 4 by 48 challenge, and I finished it, and I finished in really good timing. I did much better than I even imagined I would, and I'm just, I was just high off of that all week, and so proud of myself and I loved having people over. We had some friends and family over over the weekend and everybody was just super supportive. The whole thing was so much fun and it was really hard and I loved being able to push myself past the limit that I ever thought possible. So running 48 miles in 48 hours. And when I was at my most tired and drained, I did my best. 
that was a cool feeling to have, to think that my tank was empty, but still move past that and push myself harder and run harder and feel the accomplishment of that at the end of everything. So that was really cool. And I can't wait for the next challenge and the next thing that I want to do. Like, I'm super proud of this and stoked on it. And I, I just want to do keep doing more. All of that was great and a high. At the same time, I have, I think, a stress fracture on my left shin. And so all week I've been having to rest. And that's hard to do. Especially when I'm in this high where I'm like, oh yeah, I want to do the next cool thing. So I'm going to, I want to start training for that, but I can't because it hurts. I can't even walk (laughs) right now. (laughs) So um, it's giving me a lot of time to just sit and think. And during this time of sitting and thinking, I, I started thinking, oh my gosh, I think I have ADHD. And part of that was when we had our our episode with Nate and he was talking about ADHD and all of the things that he was talking about. I was like, wait, I have all of those things, too. Like, that's just a normal thing. And then I started looking things up and I started like talking to you guys, you and a couple of our other friends about ADHD. And um, you guys were like, no, I don't think so. I think this is just normal stuff that. You don't seem to have ADHD. And then I started given your circumstances, all of those things would line up and anybody would probably be responding in the same way. Yeah. And I think because I was like on this high, I wanted to keep doing more and more and more, but I couldn't. So I like I was just felt super disorganized. And then I started thinking about my childhood and how I was as a teenager. And all of these things were lining up with having ADHD. Like I used to just leave class just walk out of class and go for a walk on campus because I couldn't (laughs) sit there anymore. I used to just like ditch school all the time because I just could not handle sitting in class. This was like when I was in high school. In elementary school, I would get in trouble all the time for just not paying attention and talking. And I would just like sit there and chat with my friends and they'd be like, Irene, stop. I'm trying to learn. (laughs) Like, no, I have to tell you these things. (laughs) I made an appointment to my therapist and this was like Thursday. And then Friday, I, made, I she's like, okay, I can see you tomorrow. And I talked to her and she's like, so I could refer you to a psychiatrist. We could get, we could test you for ADHD or let's go down this path of like looking at your childhood and looking at all of the trauma <laughs> and the chaos that you were dealing with when you were a kid and like how that coincides with how you, what you dealt with when you were in high school and what that looks like. and. Sometimes these things look a lot like ADHD, and maybe you have that diagnosis, maybe you don't, but let's travel down this road of looking at like childhood wounds and childhood trauma and talk about some of that. So we did. So my low this week was really recognizing some of the childhood trauma and wounds from high school. I also did a genograph. So we do this in like nursing school where we make a graph of our family from like our parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, and like health problems. So we did that with addiction, mental health issues, abuse, all of that stuff throughout my entire family. So that was taking in a lot of information. Now, this is all stuff I just know and I've thought about before, but actually seeing it written down with all the little red marks and like 
the blue marks for addiction and the red marks for abuse and Mm. Seeing all of that on one piece of paper was overwhelming. Yeah. Seeing that with who in my family struggles with codependency and who in my family struggles with addiction and mental health and where I line up in that as the youngest, how codependent I am and what that looks like on paper was like, oh my gosh, it was very insightful and a little overwhelming. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. And it's your family. It's just normal. It's understood. You don't really think about it because it's like, yeah, this is who we are. This is what we bring to the table. And you don't maybe realize how much of that stuff, just because it happens, doesn't mean it's healthy or normal. And to sit down and look at it on paper, knowing what you know about mental health now. And those things you've probably disregarded because it's just like, it's a part of your story. It's a part of your normal now or your, I don't know. I have compartmentalized so much of this and like put things in their little boxes. Like, yes, this is my family, but that's in this little box over here. And I pull it out whenever I'm ready to look at something or whatever. And that's how I survive and get through life and that's okay yeah um so seeing that all on paper in that way without putting them in their little compartments like each family member has their own compartment Mm -hmm. each generation has their own compartment and it's so separate from me but seeing how I'm connected to everything was super insightful yeah and so interesting and that's part of what we wanted to talk about today was codependency and how that affects me how that affects you and how I'm sure it affects a lot of us out there yeah today's topic codependency (laughs) a lot of the information that we're going to be sharing today has come from a couple of books specifically for me I read you're not crazy you're codependent what everyone affected by addiction abuse trauma toxic shaming must know to have peace in their lives This is by Jeanette Elizabeth Mentor. Yeah, and a lot of the information that I got was from Codependent No More, How to Stop Controlling Others and Start Caring for Yourself by Melody Beattie. She defines codependency as a codependent person is one who has let another person's behavior affect him or her and who is obsessed with controlling that person's behaviors. So That just makes me feel gross. I know. Because I can think of, okay, and this is an important thing to share too, because instantly I think of all these people I know that do that. Yeah. And that's important to highlight because if you're thinking about all these other people that have problems and how you can help them by offering them this book, which I have done, you're probably codependent. (laughs) That's a red flag. You need to look at that. I have done that and I do currently do that when just for example when I was reading some of this codependent no more highlighting some of the things that I wanted to talk about today I kept thinking Molly should really read this book (laughs) (laughs) and then I text her and I was like Molly do you want to know how codependent I am (laughs) I'm highlighting this book and I'm like Molly should read this I know. And then I, I'm like, I'm, so, I'm such an idiot. So then I beat myself up and I'm like, oh, that's codependent too. Yep. Negative self-talk. <laughs> yes. Literally in this book, there's a quote that says, 
recognize how many times you say things like, I'm such an idiot. Yeah. And you hear us saying these things all the time. I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That kind of correlates to what I've found, which I think even now, as much as I know about this subject, I still have a hard time defining what it is. And in You're Not Crazy, You're Codependent, she says, while everyone who has studied it agrees on the characteristics, there are many different opinions on what actually causes or creates a codependent personality. I believe all roads lead back to addiction, abuse, trauma, or a shame-based upbringing or relationship. So relationship could be a child-parent relationship. It could be a romantic relationship that you're experiencing in adulthood or young adulthood. It can tie back to any sort of relationship. It doesn't necessarily have to be a parent. Yeah. It could be a significant other. It could be a brother-sister. Yes. So that's important to recognize, too. Yeah, and I think some of the behaviors that we should highlight, these are some of the behaviors and codependent no more, but these are some of the behaviors that I have displayed and that I recognized within myself and wanted to highlight as well. Here we go. Let's go for this ride. Feeling tricked, betrayed, everything else is their fault, being suspicious or jealous, blaming, feeling like a victim, downright outrage, frustration, bitter, angry, hurt, anxious, feeling taken advantage of, quietly suffering, having like this martyr syndrome. I can totally relate to that. I have like this messiah complex. Being a helper, being a problem solver, fear of rejection, having low self-worth, shame, going down that shame spiral, obsessions, controlling, denial. I had lived in denial for so long. It was like my home. I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) So your happiness as the codependent is dependent outside of yourself if you are somebody who's codependent. Poor communication, so that's blaming, threatening, bribery, advising without anybody asking for your advice, begging, and just being indirect. So that's like sighing or (sighs) rolling your eyes when somebody does something that you don't like because you can't directly say that you don't like something or that it's making you angry. Weak boundaries. Codependent people can become very depressed, suicidal, violent, isolate physically, mentally, emotionally ill. And I think it's important to note that codependent people can eventually become addicts themselves. Mm. And I think that it's very common for people who have gone to like AA or gone through sobriety start to realize that, oh, there's a lot of codependency underlying this as well. So if you're wondering, how do I know if I'm codependent, if all of those things didn't ring true to you, this is a nice little list. It says, do any of the following words fit anywhere in your childhood or even in a current relationship in which you struggle? Addiction, abuse, shame, trauma, guilt, anxiety, low self-esteem, obsessive behavior, sexual issues, history of dysfunctional relationships, anger issues, caretaking rescuer personality, overly responsible or controlling, or depression. If you have experienced anything on that list, especially in your childhood, 
you may be dealing with some codependency, and that's what we're here to talk about. One of the things that I want to focus on is making this a self-focused share, because that's one of the main, I think, treatments or signs that you're working on your codependency is to say, I do this. I struggle with this. I'm having a hard time with this or I experience these things. Because like I mentioned before, it's really easy when you read all these things or you hear all these things, if your mind instantly is going to, oh, that sounds just like my mother-in-law or that sounds just like my friend or my boyfriend or whoever, that's your indicator. If you're stopping and thinking about somebody else, yeah, stop it and turn it around and how can you make that a self-focused observation. So that's one thing that I'm going to try to do while we talk about this. Yeah. And that this is a lifelong recovery. So I found out I was codependent maybe in my mid-20s. And sometimes I think I'm so over it. And I'm just like, that's part of my past. And I don't have to deal with it anymore. And then it pops up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's codependent. And everything about that is codependent. How did you find out you were codependent? So I'll talk about that in just a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So I wanted to talk first about how this this saying says addicts act and the codependent reacts. But I think Molly wants to talk a little bit about how this is not just about addicts. That I'm going to talk a lot about addicts because this is what I know and was raised with and around my entire life. So I relate to this in the terms of addict codependent type of relationship. Yeah. And I think it's very common. And especially in the 12 step program in AA and NA, they draw attention to how codependent behaviors contribute to addiction or contribute to that relationship. Mm -hmm either with the addict and the self or the addict and other people around them. But codependency can relate to any type of relationship. It doesn't necessarily have to be that I struggle with codependency in my relationship with someone I know who's an addict. The fact that I'm codependent might be because I have some sort of experience with an addict, but I can manifest that in other types of relationships. Yes. Yeah. For example, I'm thinking of a person in particular that I'm having a conflict with lately. And I'm sitting in my bed and I'm just like ruminating over this thing. And I'm like, man, this person is so fucked up. They need so much help. They need therapy, probably some meds. They probably have depression, anxiety for sure. Maybe a little PTSD. I wonder what their childhood wounds are. Well, I know their dad was like this and their mom was like this. And if they ever want a shot at a normal, healthy relationship, they need some serious reflection and insight and some therapy for sure. What a good person you are, Molly, thinking about all these things for this other person. (laughs) And I'm just like judging them and shaming (laughs) them in my head. And I'm like, you piece of shit. And then I stopped myself and I go, here I go. I'm being codependent because I'm thinking of all the ways that this person's life could be improved by my insight. Mm -hmm. So what I did was send an email to my therapist to say, 
Hello, I'm a former patient of yours, and I'm wondering if I can hop back in there. Yeah. Because <laughs> clearly... <laughs> I need therapy. I, I might be a little depressed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to point your finger at somebody else and see all of their things, but when you're pointing your finger, you have four fingers pointing right back at you. Yes. Yeah. A good little thing to look at is the Cartman Triangle, and this is how to identify the cycle of codependency, pretty much. So it's the codependent, or the enabler, or the caretaker, is what we like to call it as well, rescues. That's at the top of the triangle. And at the corner is, then they persecute. One of the questions that a codependent will ask somebody is, how could you do this to me? How could you do this? Aren't you thinking about anybody else? How selfish are you? So I have said all those words in the last 24 hours (laughs) to a person. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, we're just like hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. And then um, after that, the other corner of the triangle is they become victimized. The person that is being accused or being persecuted by the codependent or the enabler or the caretaker gets defensive and angry. Then they victimize the codependent enabler person. So that's the cycle. Rescuer, they persecute, then they victimize feel victimized. So that person will go back doing the same behaviors. The enabler will come in and rescue again, ask the same questions. How could you? Why are you doing this? The person gets defensive and it goes over and over and over again. And that's the crazy cycle. Also called the Cartman Triangle. (laughs) Okay. So this isn't referring to true acts of kindness or love or compassion. You can offer help to someone who's in need while maintaining boundaries and probably not jump in to that codependency spiral. Yes. It's important to know the difference. It gets hard. It gets muddy and it gets blurry when you really do love somebody and care about somebody and you see that they're suffering and you think and know that you can help them. This is where it's different is does the person legitimately want your help or need your help or your assistance? Because we want to give. And do you legitimately want to give? Because sometimes as a codependent person, you say yes when really you mean no. Mm. So it's looking at your own emotional state and well-being and like, do I really want to help this person? Have you ever experienced being in your field whether nursing in general or mental health nursing or addiction counseling, someone comes to you in crisis and says, I need your help. I don't know what to do. Here's all the things. And you say, okay, my professional advice or opinion is do this. And they say, okay. And then they don't do that. And then they come back to you a week later. Well, nothing's working. Okay. Well, did you do the things? No. Okay. Like I'm in that right now. Yeah. It's a weird thing. Yeah. And that, you know, does the person truly want or need my help? To me, it seems so clear. You asked for my help. I gave it to you or I told you what to do for yourself. 
You didn't do that. Okay, it would be different if you tell the person what to do and then you do it for them. That's when it becomes codependent because you're giving you're giving your advice or your help because they're asking for it, but you're not actually doing it for them. You're not going over there making sure they're taking their medication or making sure they're doing all of the things and hurting yourself along the way because you're at this person's house or doing all these things for this person. Yeah. And I I have recognized that too, so I'm working on setting boundaries with this person. Because I've considered that. Well, this person is in acute crisis. And I do know what they need to do. And they're not doing it. Because I know this information, is it now my moral or ethical responsibility to just take over and do it myself? At what point do you step back and say, they have the tools? I've given them clear direction within my scope of practice and under the legal limits of the law, honestly, because it's a serious issue that needs serious attention. Am I going to like get in my car and drive over there and do it myself? Or am I going to pick up the phone and call someone to intervene? That person has a car. That person has a phone. They have judgment enough to make it through life this far. That's something that I'm struggling with right now is like, I can't help this person if they're not willing to help themselves or if they don't really want help. And then I'm like, stop fucking talking to me about it then. Because it's like stressing me out. Like, I want to help this person so bad or I want this person to get the help they need. Yeah. I want the person to get the help they need. If you're not gonna do your part, I can't do much else for you. Yeah, it's the rescuing a victim because we believe they're not able to or capable of caring for themselves or take care of themselves in any capacity that we believe we can for them. Mm -hmm. But they actually are able to. Yeah. For me, that looks like when I think about this type of dynamic, I think about it more in addiction Mm -hmm. dynamics because somebody who's struggling with addiction will say they need help or they need And sometimes they're very genuine about it and they do need help with something. But also sometimes they're very manipulative about it. And maybe they are saying this because they know that you will help them out of a situation. So it's that line of like, okay, what part of this can you do yourself that I, if somebody says, I really need help, I need to find a sober living, help me find a sober living so that they can have that connection with you again or whatever it is. Okay, I'll give you the phone numbers you call. Maybe you don't have internet access in this day and age. I don't know. Here's the phone numbers. You do the calls. You figure that part out. I'll even give you a ride if you need a ride to the sober living. Mm -hmm. But at what point? Yeah, I I think at that point where it's like, okay, I'm going to do all this work for you. I'm going to make sure that you have a place to stay for the next three days so you're sober. Blah, blah, like going through all the things where you're overexerting yourself, mm-hmm. you may not even want to do all those things, but you're doing all those things because maybe this is the chance that they're, they're going to, they're serious about this. Yeah. This is the time. Yeah. One thing that I've been trying to practice while I'm in the midst of this situation is going back to the boundary, going back to the direction that I already gave. And every time I'm reapproached by this person, I say, have you done A? Have you done B? I recommend doing C. 
and I say those exact same things every time, and then the conversation is over. But I keep coming back to it. Like, I can't help you with this part. I've even said, this is not my scope of practice. This is what needs to happen. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. And then again, a week later, clearly none of that stuff has happened. I keep coming back to it. Okay, thanks for reaching out to me. You're on the right track in trying to get some answers and, you know, like commending the person for seeking some sort of help. I I do think that a lot of people just don't know what to do. Yeah, I agree. I always say, too, I think a lot of times I take my medical knowledge for granted. So much of this stuff is just second nature for me and for both of us in nursing or in mental health. But we've studied a lot about this stuff. And so it just makes sense. But not everybody knows or understands all the little nuances. I'm walking this line of helping in the way that I can, which is continuing to reiterate those instructions. And being an open ear, I think, goes quite a long way when I think about people who are in abusive relationships, just keeping that open line of communication and not overly trying to get that person out of that abusive relationship, even though everything in me wants to. Yeah. It's like, okay, maybe this time when this person is saying they want to get out of this relationship, maybe this time they really mean it. Maybe not. But one of these times, they'll really mean it. And I want to have that open line of communication. And if the time they do really mean it, they need someone They're surely not going to reach out to the person who judged them, shamed them, told them they were dumb for participating in whatever. So yeah, maintaining, I'm working on that. Maintaining an open line, I'm here for you, but my answer is always going to be the same. And you call any medical professional, any office anywhere and ask, what do I do? This is what they're going to tell you for a reason. Yeah. I think I have another layer on top of this codependent behavior is being a Christian. Growing up in a Christian household and always being praised for being the helper mm. was very confusing for me because, and as an Enneagram too, being the helper, that's our title, mm-hmm. is the helper and helping people and giving. And so all of those things on top of one another are just praised and admired, and I love that. And so I'm going to highlight those things about myself even more. And then I'm just in the perfect Petri dish for that because in this little Petri dish, there's also a whole family of addiction and mental health and having some codependency people in my life as well, seeing their behaviors and how they interact with people with addiction. This is all things that I'm learning and being around. So it's like this perfect experiment that just turns into this codependent person. Yeah, you learn how to have relationships through your family of origin. Yeah. An example would be, um, I remember just being a little kid, maybe like preteen, and measuring my sister's alcohol in her closet. I would see alcohol in her closet and like big bottles of vodka, and I would measure it every night. Like while she was in bed or when she went out and sometimes I would pour some out and put a little bit of water. Like who does this at 10 or 11 years old, you know? Yeah. And just doing that for a while and like testing out like, well, what kind of mood is she in? Like trying to read her 
and when can I feel safe around her or when can I trust her when not to side note she's sober now and doing amazing and (laughs) but when I was a kid it was hard to see this and I mean she's not that much older than me if in your childhood you felt you had to read the room and then decide who do I need to be yes and then how that translate into a adulthood and with boyfriends over time I would do the same thing with my boyfriends like how much are they drinking measuring trying to figure out like okay can't is this per the, the people that I am attached to and choosing in my life like how much can I control them I remember talking to an ex-boyfriend's mom who is a social worker about how helpless I felt in our relationship and then dealing with some of my own family stuff at that time. This was in my mid-20s, and she suggested going to Al-Anon. She's like, Irene? And she never said, like, oh, you're codependent. She just said, you come from a family with a long line of addiction, and maybe you should go to Al-Anon. So when she told you that, were you like, fuck you, I don't need that? No, so she was actually really kind about it, and she never said, like, you're codependent, you need to do this. It was more like a suggestion. She said, I have struggled with codependency. She told me a little bit about her story and about Al-Anon and what she experienced. And I just respect her so much. She is a social worker. She just worked in so many different fields in mental health. I was just getting into working in mental health a little bit, not quite sure what I was doing with my life yet. So with that respect for her and the way she approached it, I was like, I'm going to give this a try. So I go to Al-Anon, but my first meeting in Al-Anon, I was like, uh, no, this isn't for me. Everybody here is crying about something that like they can fix. They could control this. I'll tell you what you need to do. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) They don't know what they're doing. (laughs) So obviously this isn't going to be for me. So I didn't go. I ended up breaking my boyfriend and ex-boyfriend and I broke up and I started learning more about addiction and codependency just on my own without going to Al-Anon. But my first year of being married and having a friend who was struggling with addiction really bad and being like so closely enmeshed with her and then trying to control my husband who was having like his own thing that he was dealing with. And he's somebody that is not going to be controlled. So he would like, him and I would just fight all the time. I'm like, everything is out of control. I feel so helpless in my life right now. I'm trying to control everything. And the more I'm trying to like control my friend over here, the more I'm trying to control my husband too. And like, these things are all bleeding in together and it's just a mess. Finally, I had a friend who said, you need to go to Al-Anon, please go. So I started, I went to a different Al-Anon meeting. I really liked it because my life was just out of control. I did the 12 steps. It's very similar to the 12 steps of AA. It's actually the exact same thing, but the focus is on as the codependent person, how addiction has taken over your life (laughs) and how you need to make a moral inventory of your life and all of the same concepts of the 12 steps, but for the family of the addict or the friends of the addict, or whatever. So I had to take a moral inventory of everything from ever since I could remember. That was super eye-opening for me. 
Um, I had a, a sponsor who I talked to about all these things. All of this was so helpful. So I did that for about a year. And then I started doing therapy too a little bit after Al-Anon because I was like, okay, I'm, I've gone through the 12 steps. I feel like this is a little redundant over and over and over again. My husband and I started doing counseling and going through marriage counseling, having better communication. I just became more open about who I am and what bothers me and what doesn't. Having never communicated that with him before, he just didn't know. And he thought I was just bitter and angry for, I don't know what he thought. I'm just thinking, (laughs) (laughs) whatever. I know how I was acting and how he was reacting and how all of that transpired. So we just got through a lot of issues through me going through Al-Anon and working on our relationship. And my friend ended up getting sober and we have a really great relationship now where we could talk about that time in our lives where I was super codependent. She was deep in her addiction and how that looked and all the messiness of that. A lot of things that I find helpful is just like sharing the experience. That's been very helpful for me, talking with people who are sober now, who I was so enmeshed in their addiction with and talking about that experience with them, just talking about it in a forum like this, just saying out loud what codependency is. You keep using the word control. Can you share a little bit more about what that looked like for you? Because when I think of a controlling person, they sound domineering and angry and bossy. Is that always what controlling is? No, for me, it was manipulation. Using this language of you did this to me, I am a victim. Now you need to fix this. And this is how you're going to fix this and giving the exact steps on how this is going to be fixed. That's the controlling. Knowing how to manipulate Mm -hmm. is the control. I don't identify as an angry person. It's really hard for me to access that anger. I'm trying to get better at that because anger is a healthy emotion. Yes. But especially in my early 20s, it wouldn't come out as yelling and domineering. It would come out as, for me, I'm this victim. I'm going to manipulate all of these people around me and control in that fashion. So using something from you to control another person's behavior or to change, affect change over another person. Yeah. And I was good at it and it would work for a while, but it's really not deep change for that other person because they're just trying to appease me. And I would give them the power of my happiness. I would give them the power of how I felt. Yes. So if they're good because of X, Y, and Z, then I'm good. Yes. If my opinion of me depends on someone else's opinion of me, or if my happiness depends on someone else's happiness with me, yes, codependent. Yeah. So find your own healing, I think, is a major part of Al-Anon, a major thing that I've been reading and have read with Codependent No More, with all of these other different codependent type books or self-help books. Find your own healing. Find it. Seek it. Fight for it. And know that it'll probably be really uncomfortable. And I think the more codependent you are, probably the harder it is to really dive into this and read this about yourself. Because for me, reading some of these things makes me angry. Yeah. Makes me feel shame. I think when you change your thought process to 
I'm good if other people think I'm good. When you think something, all of these issues boil down to me, then I first felt something's wrong with me and I felt shame. Yeah. And so I had to put these books down, leave it alone for a little while. Or I would read all those things and think, ugh, yep, that sounds just like so-and-so. And then I go through that whole thing in my head of anger and frustration with other people in my life and have to put it down for that reason. It might be very anxiety-provoking. It might be shame-provoking. It's okay if you have to take a little break or several breaks, read a few pages here and there or listen to an audiobook or whatever. It's going to be hard. And it's a process. And it's a process. And it takes a long time. I mean, sometimes I think I'm so over that codependent behavior and it comes up. Yeah. Still. And I I could look at it. I could either see it coming from a mile away and know, oh, this is a codependent type of relationship that's going to happen. So I need to cut this off. Or I don't see it at all. And while it's happening, I'm like, oh, this is a codependent move that I'm doing. I need to step back and I need to confess to this person like this is what's happening and I don't like how this feels set boundaries or sometimes it's afterwards and I have to take that moral inventory and look back at like that wasn't completely selfless of me there was manipulation involved with that there was x y and z involved with that and that's a very codependent I could see it now because I've learned so much about my own behaviors and how I respond to these things and it's just part of my personality that I have to learn to cope with and deal with and go through life with. And I'm okay with that now. Yeah. Understanding that this isn't an illness or a disease that has a treatment and it's fixed and it goes away. Like you read this book, you know your issue and boom, it's done. But the healing, I think, is in having those thoughts recognizing them, acknowledging them, and then stopping them and changing the mindset or changing the behavior, whether it's in the middle or after, like you said, you never know when you're going to come to that realization, but just recognizing it, recognizing it whenever you do and making an attempt to shift. Yes. I think that's, that's huge. Yeah. I think maybe homework this week will be just looking at Looking at yourself, when you're listening to this episode, not thinking, oh, so-and-so really needs to listen to this. Maybe taking this in this week, taking some time to just look at yourself and how have I been codependent in my life? Maybe you're not codependent at all. And that's great. You're probably not funny either. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you don't have any uh, childhood trauma or dealt with addiction, or have any mental health issues, you probably aren't funny. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't want to be your friend. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But just looking at it at your looking at yourself throughout the week and putting looking in the mirror, pretty much. Yeah. If you find yourself in a conflict with another person, and you feel the need to blame or shame someone else. Yeah. Is that the Carpman triangle happening? Yeah. (laughs) Are you rescuing? Are you doing these things that um, you're listening to this episode and you're like, oh, yeah, I definitely may do those things. 
So yeah, take a deeper dive. We're going to have these books on our show notes so you can see what they are. And if you want to order them, they're great books. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. As always, you can find us on Instagram at That's Not Crazy Podcast and on Facebook at That's Not Crazy. And we look forward to chatting with you. Bye. Bye. That was me rewinding.